0: So for the first 30 or so years of Jesus' earthly life, he lived in such a way that those that were closest to him, the people of Nazareth, his brothers, his family, his friends, they saw in Jesus nothing other than an ordinary man. As a baby, Jesus was dependent upon the care of his parents. Had Mary refused to nurse him when he was hungry, he would have died. Had Joseph refused to heed the warning and take his family and flee to Egypt, When Herod desired to destroy the king of the Jews, Jesus would have died. As a boy, he grew. He learned. He became stronger. He had chores that he had to do. He had to submit to the will of his parents. Just like any other boy, Jesus had to grow. As a man, whenever Jesus was hungry, he had to eat. Whenever he was tired, he had to sleep. If he wanted to travel somewhere, he had to walk there, ride upon a donkey perhaps. Just like any other man, Jesus traveled and he lived a life, truly, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When he was cut, he bled. When he was hungry, he ate. When he was sad, he cried. When he was tired, he slept. He did not merely look like a man. He was a man, fully and completely a man, just like you and just like me, with the singular exception of sin. He had a fully human body, a fully human mind fully human will fully human emotions he was tempted as a man he was tried as a man he was tested as a man all while refusing to grasp equality with god while rejecting the temptation to pick up and work within his own divine power so to those who knew jesus best he apparently looked like nothing other than an ordinary carpenter the brother of james and Joseph and judas and simon the son of Mary but she knew she knew that his conception was not like any other child that had ever come to earth she knew that it happened just as the angel Gabriel had told her she would be overcome by the power of God it was by the Holy Spirit that this child would come to live within her womb she remembered the words of the angel as he told her he'll be great and he will be called son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him a throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. She had forgotten the visit from her relative Elizabeth and the baby within her womb, John the Baptist, how he had leapt at being in the presence of his Lord. Mary had treasured within her hearts the words of the shepherds as they came to see that baby after he was born. She remembered the gifts that the Magi had brought from a long distance. Both she and Joseph, they marveled at the words of this man named, this man named Simeon that was there in Jerusalem when they presented the child in the temple as he said now finally I can die I may die in peace because today I've seen the Lord's Christ this was not normal and yet for everybody else that saw Jesus as far as they could tell he was an ordinary man and then at the appointed time following his baptism following the temptation in the wilderness the beginning of his earthly ministry Jesus began to reveal something so much deeper that he was so much more you see Jesus didn't teach like ordinary man He didn't have to refer to the authority of someone else. He didn't have to begin his teaching with, thus saith the Lord. He could merely say, truly, truly, I say unto you. Ordinary men don't speak like that. Beyond that, he talked about forgiveness, forgiveness of sin. The fact that he himself had the ability to forgive the sins of others. Jesus was revealing that in him was the sovereignty of God. Beyond this, his wisdom and knowledge, it wasn't like the wisdom of men. He knew the hearts. He knew the thoughts of men. He would answer questions before they would have even ask them. He would address fears before they had even been expressed. Jesus was revealing that in him was the unending knowledge, the omniscience of God. Then while on the Sea of Galilee in the darkness of night, as one of those just terrible storms swept in from the mountain, he slept in the stern of the boat, and his friends, they believed that surely they were going to perish. So they awakened him, and with just a word, peace, be still, all was calm. Jesus was revealing that in him was the infinite power, the infinite, unending power, the omnipotence of God. Jesus spoke in the strangest of terms. Despite being born some 1,600 years after the death of Isaac's father, Jesus would say that before Abraham was, I am. He was revealing that in him is the eternal nature of God when attending a party, as was a wedding party. His mother alerted him to the fact that there was a problem. So Jesus, as he goes, and he turns water into wine. We read in John 2.11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee. And he manifested his glory. Jesus revealed that in him was the glory of God. You see, God had taken all these things, all these proofs, all these evidences, all these revelations, and he had brought Peter and the other apostles to the revelation. He gave them ears to hear. He gave them eyes to see. He gave them hearts to believe that they might confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but these men could not possibly understand all that that confession meant. Truth be told, we don't fully comprehend it today. You see, we know that in Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity, that is, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And yet we know that this is so much more than just Jesus coming disguised in humanity. This is so much more than just Jesus coming wrapped in a suit of human flesh, we know that somehow Jesus Christ came fully and completely and eternally God, the same nature, the same substance. Everything that you can say about God the Father, the power, the wisdom, the love, the mercy, the wrath, the righteousness, the justice, the authority, every single thing that makes God God is found in Jesus Christ. He did not become God. He had always been God infinitely, eternally. Jesus is God. I think we undershoot Christmas sometimes it's one that had always been God that some 2,000 years ago he determined for his own glory for the salvation of his people he determined that the God that is not bound by time or space that the invisible God which cannot be seen that he would come and be born of a virgin taking upon himself the fullness of humanity. Not just the appearance of man, the very nature of man. That within one person, we would find truly God and truly man. Fully God and fully man. Two natures, God and man, perfectly and completely coming together in one person. There's nothing like this in all of creation, you see. You take 100% of something and 100% of another, you bring them together, you get some kind of mixture. You get 50-50, a combination, a blend a loss of what once was, or creation of something altogether new. But in Jesus Christ, we see no modification like this whatsoever. See, we've, deve- we've developed a fancy word for this. It's the hypostatic union. But don't you understand, just because you can come up with a name for a mystery doesn't make it any less of a mystery. Just because we can apply a name to something doesn't mean all of a sudden we've got it figured out. There's nothing like this in all creation. We take 100% of what is, infinitely what is, he that has always been God, You come and you join that together with humanity, and there is no loss. There is no new thing. There is no rounding of the corners. 100% and 100% still remaining 100% in one man, Jesus Christ. How could he sleep in his mother's arms, relying upon her care, while at the same time holding together the very universe which he has created? How can he grow weak from hunger there in the wilderness while at the very same time holding on to the power to destroy Satan and all of his demons with merely a word? How can he learn to speak and walk and teach and write while at the same time never ceasing to be the very word through which everything was created? Dear friends, there's no miracle like this in all the earth. I think we've undershot Christmas. We've seen a lot of miracles in Jesus' life. And I chuckle at how understated mark is when he speaks about them but i think perhaps there is no miracle which is more greatly understated because perhaps we're so familiar with it because we look at a child laying within a manger we're so familiar with the story we lose sight of what it is that happened here it's the god that created the universe chose to come to come to rebellious men came to take upon himself the fullness of humanity for the sake of his glory, for the salvation of his people, that he would join himself completely to human nature forever, that the infinite would come to be found with the finite forever. Now, God had been revealing this to the people, but it was only to those that he had granted eyes of faith, only those that he had granted ears of faith, the ability to see and believe who Jesus was as he did these works. And then as a gift to those people so that they could persevere in the days ahead because times were fixing to get tough. He was going to expose to them just the inner three, just those closest to him, Peter, James, and John. He took them high upon a mountain. We're told that they fell asleep there as Jesus prayed. But then they awoke and they watched as Jesus pulled back the flesh of his humanity. For 30 years he had looked like any other man. But now as he pulled back the flesh of his humanity, they saw what previously they had seen with these eyes of faith. What previously they had seen in his works and in his words, now they saw. With their physical eyes, now they saw visibly. Before their very face, they saw the glory of God on display. The glory that had always belonged to Jesus Christ. His clothes became white, whiter than any man could bleach them. And his face began to glow like the noonday sun. This radiant light. It was a visible manifestation of the glory that had always been his. Of the weight, of the infinite worth of the value, of the majesty, of the magnitude of all that Jesus is. And under the weight of this, men are meant to be driven down in worship. We talked last week, we've talked for the last eight weeks or so about the reality that the only way you can come into this place with a right sense of worship is if you are falling on your face at the magnitude, the weight, the glory of who God is. But you cannot come into this place and wait for these people to whip you into a frenzy. You cannot come into this place and hope that they're going to play the songs that you like. You cannot come into this place and hope that you don't fight with your wife in the parking lot. The only way that you can come into this place and rightly approach the throne of King Jesus is if you have beheld his face. You have seen the glory of all that he is. And so it's a gift to these. It's a gift to us as it's recorded through these men. He pulls back the veil of his humanity and he reveals his glory to them. And suddenly Moses and Elijah were there. The one through whom the law was given, the one by whom God called men to return to the law, they were there, and they were speaking with Jesus about his death. And Peter was both terrified and elated, so much so he didn't know what to say, but that didn't stop him. He went ahead and spoke. He said, it's good that we're here. Let me make three tents for you. You see, Peter didn't want this to end. He didn't want this moment to end. Why would we ever go back down the mountain? Why do we go on to a life of suffering? Why would we go to Jerusalem where you're going to be killed? Let's just hang out here in the mountain in the presence of God forever. No one even bothered to respond. Just then a cloud overcame them completely, and there was a voice from the cloud, and they said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The men rightly fell on their face in terror, fell down like dead men. And Jesus, he watched o- walked over, and he touched them, and he told them, arise. Do not be afraid. And as they looked up, it was over. Because it was not time to dwell in the presence, to dwell in the glory, to remain there on that mountain. It was time for Jesus to turn and to accomplish the very mission for which he had come. He was going to set his face towards Jerusalem, and he was going to march there towards a certain death. You see, this child, he was born that he would die. Had he come and abandoned the cross? That was the temptation of Satan. Had he come and refused to go to Jerusalem? Had he come and refused to submit? All of this would have been for naught. We would all be lost in our sin, completely separated. There would be no Christmas to celebrate were it not for Easter. Go ahead and stand to your feet. Return to Mark's gospel, the ninth chapter, verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is, it, how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, I am terrified. By the degree to which I think I have you figured out. Father, we ought to fall on our face. We ought to tremble if we really knew the one to whom we speak today. The one in whose presence we study your holy word. The one we seek to glorify today. Do not allow us to be comfortable. Do not allow us to become complacent. Father, restore in us a heart that trembles at the realization that we are sinners standing before an infinitely holy God. Knowing that it is only there that we may then truly celebrate all that Jesus Christ is and all that he has come to accomplish on our behalf. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. As they were coming down the mountain. And so it seems to me that we're still just talking about the inner circle here. That we're still just talking about Jesus plus the three as they come down. It seems to me that the other apostles were still at the base of Mount Hermon there in Caesarea Philippi. Right there in the most northern area of Israel where the Banias River begins its journey towards the Jordan. And so it says that as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. So I have to imagine that as excited as these men were, and they were excited, you have to know that they probably wanted to go running down that mountain and tell not just the other nine apostles but all of the disciples exactly what it was, exactly what Jesus had revealed there on that mountain. But I have to imagine at the same time they were somewhat relieved that they didn't have to try and find the words. Now we do have some words this morning, words that were surely given from Peter to John Mark and recorded for for us, but surely they had to know that words were not going to do justice to what they had seen. You see, Paul was given a vision of heaven, and what he tells us after that is that he had heard things that cannot be told, which may not be uttered. How much less can the words be uttered about that which they had seen there on that mountain? The glory of God displayed in the face of his sign. Surely, words were not going to do this thing justice, and so they may have been uh, relieved at the fact that Jesus had told them, don't tell anyone. Surely, they looked at each other and went, good, because we don't even know what to say. We don't even know what it is that we've just seen. But we've seen this throughout the Gospel of Mark. This call to silence. We saw at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as he had healed many people, as he had freed many people that were oppressed by demons, we see that Jesus says, do not, excuse me, it says in Mark one thirty four, Jesus would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Then on the very next day as he healed a leper, Mark one forty four, Jesus said to them, see that you say nothing to anyone but go and show yourself to the priests. Then a bit later, when Jesus confronted with another crowd and he heals many more people, Mark 3, 11 through 12, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God, and he strictly ordered them, not to make himself known to anyone. Then after raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, all of his family was amazed. All of her all of her family was amazed, and then Mark 5:43, he strictly charged them that no one should know this. A few weeks back when he healed the deaf man, Mark 7:36, Jesus charged them to tell no one. Then after Peter's confession, Mark 8:30, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is a recurring theme all throughout Mark's gospel. When men would come to recognize the identity of Christ, whether it was demons, whether it was the crowd, whether it was the apostles, he would immediately tell them, keep this to yourself. And we're never told why. Now, Jesus doesn't owe us an answer. Jesus doesn't owe us an answer behind his commandments. That's the very nature of discipleship. Jesus obeys. Jesus commands and we obey. Jesus leads and we follow. Many of us in this room, we could just hit pause right here and just spend the remainder of our time meditating on this truth. Jesus once said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? That's the very picture of discipleship. It's to follow after his leadership. It's to not demand answers. He leads, we follow. He commands, we obey. Because true discipleship, it isn't wrapped up in our ultimate understanding is isn't wrapped up in our demand that we understand everything. True discipleship It not wrapped up in our ability to see the whole picture. True discipleship is like sheep falling after a shepherd. We hear his voice, we know his voice, and we follow after him. Trusting his leading more than our own thoughts. Trusting his leading more than our own understanding. Trusting his leading more than our emotions or our circumstances. Trusting his leading at all times. And so Jesus owes no explanation. And up to this point, he hasn't given one. Why on earth would Jesus, the Christ, the one that came to usher in the kingdom of God, the one that came to proclaim the gospel, why would he then silence those that come to some understanding of his identity? Well, in this morning's text, we seem to get some indication of why. And I think that perhaps we can understand all those other that we just read in light of what he shows us here. So he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, see, Jesus had never given a timeline to this call to silence before. As best I can tell in all the other records where he commands men to keep his identity to themselves, it's open-ended. It's forever. But here, when he speaks to Peter and James and John, he tells them, tell no one about my identity. Tell no one what you have seen upon this mountain. Tell no one what has been revealed to you until, until you see me raised again. So apparently there is something necessary about Jesus' death and resurrection to rightly understanding who he is and why he's come. So, throughout our study of Mark's gospel, we've talked about the fact that for the first century Jew, it was impossible for them to understand Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Messiah, without immediately having thoughts of a conquering king. Because for them, just like so many today, they believed that all of their enemies, that all of their struggles were external, were physical, were earthly. They thought that all their troubles were wrapped up in their lack of food, their lack of money, their lack of health, their lack of freedom. Too much pain too much suffering too many ugly people out there they thought that all their problems were external and earthly and immediate right out there among them for them and for most people living today they're all too happy to follow after or to create a savior that will bring immediate comfort to them today they'll bring immediate healing to them today they'll make promise that life here and now is going to get better and so whenever Jesus healed someone whenever he created fish or bread where there was none they couldn't help themselves immediately even the disciples They would immediately have these pictures of this man rising up Israel that they would be set free from the Romans. And so to prevent this kind of fervor, this political, this military, this social fervor that would have been whipped up whenever they would have seen these things, whenever they would have heard about the coming of the Messiah, he would call these people to keep it to themselves. But we saw one exception. You remember that there was the demoniac, the man possessed with many demons in the country of the Gerasenes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Gentile region. We know that it was there... That whenever Jesus healed the man and he came to recognize, he fell at the feet of Jesus, recognizing who he was, he told that man, go and tell all your friends what the Lord has done for you. It seems to me that this is probably because within that region, the people didn't have these same thoughts. They weren't wrapped up in these same preconceived notions about who the Christ was supposed to be. But for the people of Israel, it was impossible for them to rightly understand. And so, from the moment of Peter's confession got open their eyes and open their ears and brought them to confess from that moment he began to help them to understand with his continued touch of sight he continued to bring them to a deeper understanding of who the Christ was and why he had come it's seen with these spiritual eyes of faith and now he was going to bring them along with deeper and deeper and deeper understanding. so he began to speak plainly to him about his mission that he had come to be rejected to suffer many things to be killed and then to rise again now I said last time we talked about this that we would cover the why at the appropriate time. And I still don't want to go too deeply into this. But I do believe that it is right at this time to understand that what God had been revealing from all time is that man's greatest enemy aren't external. They're not physical. They're not earthly. They're internal. They're spiritual. They're more than food, more than clothing, more than freedom. What man needs is forgiveness of sin, to be set free from the fear of death and Satan, and more than all of this, to be reconciled with God. You see what God had been saying from all creation is you think the Romans are your enemies you're at odds with me you're worried about what the Romans are going to do with you you are under my wrath you want freedom from the chains from the bondage from the taxation that they pour upon, that they pour upon you wait until you see the eternity of hell what you need more than anything else is to be made right with me you think the Romans are tough wait until you taste my wrath I've come to set you free from something so much more and you're settling for so much less you're looking for an earthly Savior you're looking for a Messiah crafted in your image you're looking for tidbits and trinkets and I'm offering you eternity that was the message that he'd been trying to unveil throughout all creation throughout all time through the prophets through the priests through the sacrifices and now in his son Jesus Christ that this battle it cannot be won by physical power it cannot be won by worldly might it is only when one the representative of man and yet powerful enough, worthy enough, that in laying down his life, he may set men free. He may satisfy the wrath of his father. He may satisfy the ransom. It is only in that one, in the laying down of his life, that this battle can be won and that any of those things that the men truly needed could be offered to them. Listen, you can always raise up a king to wage a battle. An earthly king with a big enough sword, he can always wage the battle. But only this one, only the God-man can set you free. Only the God-man can release you by satisfying the wrath of his Father. And so this is why the cross and the empty tomb were absolutely necessary for these men to have any understanding of who Jesus was. To have any understanding of what it meant for the Messiah to come. Number one, because the cross was a place at which this was purchased. Number two, because the empty grave proved that it was enough. It proved that he reigned today. We don't have to wait later for him to come to reign. It proved that he reigned today. He had overcome Satan and sin and hell and death and the grave. That when he poured that cup over, there was nothing left to come out because he had fully drunk down the wrath of his father. There was nothing left for us to do. That's the ridiculousness of purgatory. That's the ridiculousness of you trying to pay your own penalty. That's the ridiculousness of you trying to wipe out the slate of of your own sin. He says, I've done it all. I've done every bit of what needs to be done. And that's what was proven at the empty grave. And he said, you can't see this. You can't understand this. You can't know this until you see the empty tomb. This is why he told Peter and the others to keep his identity to themselves until this had been revealed. Until. Because if these people find out, you think they got worked up over some bread? You think they got worked up over some fish? Wait until they find out about the glory that was radiating from my very face. You will not be able to contain who these people are. You will not be able to contain their preconceived notions about who I am and what I've come to do. And so, We see in this morning's text, though, even at that, how difficult it is, that side of the cross, that side of the tomb for the people to understand who Jesus was. We see even during the the Passion Week with the triumphal entry, we see John 12, 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. They simply couldn't understand why Jesus came and who he was until they saw it. They couldn't understand why Jesus had come until his death, and they couldn't rightly understand his death until his tomb was empty. So he says, you must wait. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. The men did as Jesus commanded, but they couldn't help but wonder. So they asked each other, what is Jesus talking about with this rising from the dead? And so it's easy for us on this side to wonder, what was wrong with these guys? Jesus had just been down at the bottom of the mountain, speaking to all of them about his death and his resurrection. These three had been with Jesus whenever he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. We know that for many conservative Jewish men and women, they had some understanding of a resurrection. At the culmination of the kingdom of God, when he returns in power, at this general resurrection from the dead, what is there for them not to understand? And we don't know exactly. We don't know whether it's because they were only viewing this in light of a general resurrection, resurrection of all God's people from the dead. They had no concept of one singular man being raised from the dead. Or perhaps what was it was that they still hadn't come to grips with the fact that Jesus would die. They still hadn't come to grips with the fact that as they headed to Jerusalem, they were going there for the one they followed to lay down his life and die. We're not told where their struggle is, but church, I would tell you that this shows us just how radical Jesus' person, his mission, his message is. We stand here and we take it for granted like we've just got the cross figured out. And a matter of fact, I worry sometimes. You heard that in my prayer, and I worry sometimes for others. As we share to them the mystery of the cross, As we unveil to them the glory of the gospel, and they just shake their head as if it all makes sense. It terrifies me for those. Now listen, there have been plenty of men that have been brought to salvation upon the very first time of hearing the gospel. And God could give you any level of understanding that he wants, but for most people, it takes time. It takes a continued touch of Jesus Christ to bring us to a place of having any hope of really understanding what it meant for Jesus to come, for Jesus to die, for Jesus to be raised. We've got to remember that understanding and faith are not synonymous. That faith comes as God awakens those that were previously dead, grants them eyes to see and ears to hear. And that then behind the voice of a preacher, they hear the voice of God calling them like shepherd calling his sheep, calling them to himself, giving them the ability to turn, repent of their sin, truly repent, and trust in him to come in repentance and faith, to truly believe in Jesus as their Savior. That, that is faith. That is a mysterious, mysterious, miraculous, supernatural work of God. And that from that point forward, he continues to touch us and bring us into a deeper understanding of even the cross, even the one in whom we have placed our faith. We never come to the end of understanding who Jesus is, the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the cross. And it terrifies me. As people just sit and nod their head like, yes, this makes perfect sense. I've always known this. No, you don't. No, you don't. At very least, you should be offended by what I've just told you. Do you understand? I'm telling you that you are so depraved. You are so wretched. Out from within your heart comes so much filth. You are so far separated from God that it requires the death of his son to make you right with him. You should either fall on your face in tears or you should punch me in the face, one or the other. But don't sit there and nod your head. Don't act like this makes perfect sense. Don't act like this is pleasing to your flesh. Don't act like this is any other story you've ever heard. There's nothing like this in all the universe. It should be offensive to the man that is not saved. And to the one that is saved, it should drive you to your face in worship. It should wreck you to know all that Jesus has done. So we see for most of us what happens. He brings us with that first touch, that supernatural work. As God intervenes into our life and He calls us to faith, He brings us to life. We see this response of faith, not even fully understanding. There's got to be some understanding, of course. How can you place faith in someone if you don't know who he is? How can you place faith in something if you don't know what he's done? And yet we know that with this continued touch, that's what we saw in the two-staged healing of the blind man in Bethsaida, that you will continue to grow in your understanding all throughout this Christian life. And if you ever think you've got there, you need to be very scared. It needs to bring you great concern when you think you've got this figured out. When you think you've got the mystery wrapped up, because that would make you the only person in the history of the world. So we see here this continued touch as he brings them along in their understanding, knowing that while we may not come to the cross with the same preconceived notions as the Israelites, we have plenty of our own. We begin with the mindset that man's mostly good. Anything bad that happens, it's just a result of our circumstances, our situations, something you sorry people did to me. Perhaps we come to the cross not fully understanding that Jesus didn't just suffer physically. Again, he was drinking down his Father's wrath on our behalf. Or perhaps we come to the cross, we come to the empty tomb not fully understanding why it was that Jesus needed to rise again and then walk around this place for another 40 days. Why would he not just go back immediately into heaven? We come with our own preconceived notions. And so there's volumes and volumes of works out there by good and brilliant and faithful men trying to help people like us, believers. Those who have been brought to saving faith, trying to help us to rightly think and understand the cross and the grave. So let us not get too smug. Let's not look back at these silly Jews and think, oh, why don't you understand this thing? Because we very well may have taken, we may very well have taken the stumbling block, the offense that is the cross, and made it into something more palatable. That may be why we sit here quite comfortable, because we've rounded off the edges. We've taken away the offense. We've taken away the stumbling block. Not because we've submitted to Jesus Christ in faith, but because we've created something else in our own image. We've created a false gospel, an American gospel, a gospel that begins with God loves you and he's got a good plan for your life, and it ends there. And so we all nod our head or we shake our head in disbelief at the Jews. How can they not see that Jesus was standing before them? How can you not see that Jesus is standing before you? He's revealing himself in his word. And if he has, how can you stand there with indifference? How can we sit comfortably in this place? How can we not tremble? If you come back Christmas Eve, it'll be a lighter message. We'll, we'll have. I think we've undershot Christmas though. Undershot. The word was undershot Christmas. What did you think I said? I didn't say a cuss word. And this is where this text gets really tough. Tough to understand at least, verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? So, so Elijah's come up all throughout this gospel, right? We, we've, we've read that they mistook Jesus and John the Baptist for Elijah. Of course, Elijah was just standing with them there on this mountain. We can't blame these people for having Elijah on their mind. As they come down and they understand that Elijah is here. Elijah has come, but now he's returned. And you know, we've talked often or several times throughout our study of Mark's gospel how, for the Jewish people, there was always this understanding of Elijah coming and proceeding the coming of the Messiah. They get this from the very last verses of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn your hearts, the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with decree of utter destruction. And so, this text doesn't talk about the Messiah here, though. I don't see his name here. He's talking about the coming of the Lord. It seems to me, though, that what's happened for the Jewish people is they have combined. In their minds, they have understood the coming of the Messiah and the day of the Lord to be a simultaneous event, a singular one-time event, that this great and awesome day of the Lord, this day when God would come, he would destroy all those that opposed him. He would save all those that were his, that he would restore perfect order to all the universe. He would come in judgment, that it was at that time that there would be this general resurrection when those that were gods were raised from the dead to live in his presence forever. And so it seems, as best I can understand, that the Jewish people, they believed that this would all happen when the Messiah first appeared. But you will notice that what the, what the three are asking him here, what the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, what they're asking him, though, is not what does Malachi say. They asked, why do the scribes say? We've got to begin from that understanding, that the word of the scribes, the teaching of the scribes, it had been elevated to the level of Scripture, sometimes above the priority, the authority of Scripture. Because God's Word is old. God's Word is hard to understand. God's Word is even harder to apply in this contemporary day and age. We need something new. We need something that changes with the times. We need something that's gonna show us how we can really change our life here and now. And so they turn to the words of men. They turn to the words of scribes. They turn to the commentaries instead of turning to the Word of God. I don't need to tell you how dangerous this is, but this seems to be part of their struggle. The understanding of the scribes, uh, the understanding of these men is they had studied under these scribes, and so they didn't seem to have a concept of the reality that the Messiah must first come to inaugurate the kingdom of God, that he would come as a suffering servant. that He would come as one to lay down his life and to be raised again. But then at his second coming, then we would see him coming in power. The fullness of the kingdom would come in that time. They seemed to think that this was a singular event. They didn't seem to understand. They had no room within their theology, no room of understanding that the Messiah would come once to die, and then he would return a second time, not as a suffering servant, not as a little babe, but as a champion, as a king riding on a horse, swinging a sword, coming in judgment, laying low the enemies, restoring all things to what they, what they were intended to be. And so I think this is why they ask this question. I think what's happened here is Jesus has said, look, you can't talk about this thing, you can't share this thing with other people until you see me raised again. They immediately only know of one resurrection in the last day, in the day of the Lord, so they're looking for the coming of Elijah. They're saying, as best we can understand, the Messiah comes, the day of the Lord comes, Elijah must come first. We just saw Elijah, but he left. He's not here anymore. He didn't seem to accomplish the things that we read in Malachi. He didn't seem to accomplish the things that our scribes have told us would happen, and so they had no idea what this is then. What are we waiting for? Is Elijah going to come back? Are we going to live forever until the day of the Lord comes? What's going to happen that's going to make this possible? And so Jesus says to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. This may be the first time in Scripture that Jesus affirms something that the scribes have said. He says, listen, yes, what Malachi has said is true. Elijah must come before the day of the Lord. Elijah must come to make things right, to prepare the way, to make straight the path. To turn the hearts of people lest destruction comes when the day of the lord comes but then he corrects their theology with another touch he brings them to a more understand, greater understanding to see more clearly and how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt now this it's, this is this question is worded really strange it's even hard to just read through it's even harder to understand but this is a rhetorical question what he's saying is you have focused on the last day you have focused on the day when I will come in power and glory. You have focused on the day when you will see me riding in my, on, my white house, on my white horse in judgment. But you have completely missed the suffering, the death, the empty tomb, which must come for make all of that, to make all of that possible. As it is written of me, he's surely thinking about texts like Isaiah 53 that tells us he'll be a man of sorrows, smitten and afflicted on our behalf. Or perhaps Psalm 22 where we hear him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or even the picture that we see painted in the Passover lamb. The one whose blood must be shed. He's saying, what about all this that was written of me? That all these things that will come to prepare for the day of the Lord. The only way that you can stand in the day of the Lord is if I would suffer. If I would be afflicted. If I would die and then rise again. That's what he's saying here. You want all the beauty. You want all the goodness. You want all the power. You want all the majesty. You want all the redemption that comes in the day of the Lord. And everyone will follow a king like that. Had Jesus shown up riding a giant horse? swinging a sword, shooting laser beams from his eyeballs, everyone would have fallen down and gotten in line. He says, but very few want to follow after a suffering servant. And so you completely missed it. Even rejected in Peter's case where he says, far be it, God, this isn't going to happen to you, Lord. You've missed and then sometimes rejected that because of the sins of the world, because your enemies are internal, because you are separated from God, because you are so depraved, because you are A follower a child of Satan because of the sin and the brokenness and your love for the darkness of this world you are so separated from God that unless I die unless I suffer unless I take your place there upon the cross that day of judgment will not be what you hope for when I come in judgment you too will be judged and you will be found lacking don't you see we all sit around and we pray for the return of Jesus Christ we pray for the day of the Lord We pray for his day of might and power when he restores all things, not ever once thinking that apart from his death, I cannot stand in that day. You see, these people, they thought that perhaps because they were from the right bloodlines, because they were children of Abraham, because they were from the right tribe, because they attended the right synagogue, they thought, surely I must be acceptable to God. Surely I've said the right prayer, I've read the right books, I've attended the right church, I've taught the right Sunday school class. Surely I will be okay in the coming day of the Lord. He says, no, no one gets a pass. Unless I suffer, unless I am killed, unless I rise again, there will be no one that will stand in that final day. You will all perish. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's marvelous that you know who I am. It's marvelous that you come to recognize that in me the fullness of deity dwells. It's marvelous that you recognize that with me comes the kingdom of God. It's marvelous that you look forward to the coming of the kingdom of God, the ultimate consummation of the kingdom of God. It's great that you know that in me is the words of eternal life. But unless I suffer and die, you have no access There is no place for you. There is no other way other than my death. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you have done to earn it. So you look forward with great anticipation to me coming in power. That power will be turned against you unless I die, unless you follow me, unless you let loose of all the good things of this world. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You will not be among those jumping in the streets with your arms raised high at the coming of your Savior. You will be among those crying out for the rocks to fall upon your head because you know destruction is nigh. I wonder how many people sit in pews just like this, singing songs, raising their hands, looking forward with great anticipation at the second coming of Jesus Christ. All the while, his heart is broken in knowing that when that day comes, it will be a day of wrath for you. Because you have looked in other places for your salvation. You've looked in other places that you might be spared from the judgment. Because you have glossed completely over the cross, or you have just taken the cross and you've just added it into your life. It's just an accessory to your life. But I tell you that Elijah has come. What? He says Elijah will come. Now he says that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And so if Peter and James and John were starting to get their footing, now certainly they're knocked right back. Because he said, listen, Elijah has come, but don't get mixed up. Don't, don't, Don't lose sight of my suffering, of my death, of my resurrection. And now he's saying... And Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, just as it was written of him. And so I could spend, yeah, I probably shouldn't, I could spend ten minutes trying to wrestle with what this is, or we could just go to Matthew's parallel account, and we read here very plainly what's happening. Matthew 17, 12 through 13. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist in short what jesus is telling them is you have a hard time seeing how all this glory and all this majesty and all the good things that god extends to you come through my death and through my suffering if you have a hard time reckoning with the reality that god would allow his son his servant the one that comes to usher in the kingdom to suffer to be killed look to john the baptist you saw what happened to him i've said myself that there was none greater born among women than john the baptist and yet you saw what happened you saw how he lost his head how he was imprisoned and then ultimately how he lost his head on the whims of an evil woman do not think that you're going to escape this same kind of suffering do not try to talk me out of walking the path that leads to this same kind of suffering suffering always precedes glory there is never a path to glory that does not include suffering that ought to cause us great concern at times as we seek the easy way as we seek to avoid suffering at all cost as we seek to do a roundabout around suffering He says, there is no way to glory that does not include suffering. Look at John the Baptist, and now look at my life and what lays before me. I'm going to march this path to suffering. You've already seen the one that came in the spirit. This wasn't a resurrection of Elijah. This wasn't a, uh, what's the thing where you're a cockroach, and then you're a dog, and then you're a man? This isn't a reincarnation of Elijah. This was one that came in the spirit of Elijah. This is one that came to prepare the way, to speak the truth. And they mistreated him. Yes, they mistreated him. Elijah will come, and Elijah has come. I wonder if perhaps, and he's what we see in Revelation 11 with the coming of the two witnesses, and perhaps that's a picture of what happens when Elijah comes before the last day of the last day, the coming of the day of the Lord. And yet he's saying, one has already come in the spirit of Elijah, and they didn't receive him either. They're never going to receive the messengers of God because the message of God is contrary to man. The message of God is offensive to man. The message of God cannot be received by flesh. So they're always going to refuse to receive it they're always going to reject you you will always suffer and in the end they may very well may take your life for each one of them they would so what do we do with this Well, I, I think what's happening here is I think that Jesus is just kind of hitting the reset button and he's taking these guys right back to what they were talking about at the base of the mountain I think that as a gift as an act of grace as he has taken these men up there to pr- prepare them to give them something to focus on the days to come as he's pulled back the veil and he's revealed his glory, I think as he's prepared them for their own suffering, he is now snapping them back to reality and saying, well, you must remember what you have seen here. While it is by gazing upon my face that you will be transformed, that you will persevere, that you will endure into the end, even while beholding my, my face, you must not lose sight of the reality that suffering is coming that I am headed to lay down my life, and that's the only way that you may have eternal life. And that gift is only applied to you if you too follow me in this suffering. I think that he's drawing them back to the reality after having given them this glimpse, giving them this picture, this picture which should be emblazoned within our minds as we suffer through this life, as we ourselves march towards glory from one stage of glory to another. He's saying, and now the suffering comes. That's why we can't stay on the mountain. That's why we've got to turn and we've got to head towards Jerusalem because the road ahead is hard and it is narrow. There is no path that does not lead through great trial and tribulation. I think that's what Jesus is showing them here. Because it's so easy to get wrapped up in these hot mountaintop moments. We have these moments in this room. We've had many of them over the last couple of years. These moments in this room where we feel God's presence. We feel God's presence. We experience his goodness. We are moved in our spirit because God is here and he's showing himself and he's revealing himself. And we have these mountaintop moments and then we don't want to go out there into this world. Or perhaps we want to leave this thing here while trying to go out there in this world and tackle it in our own flesh in our own abilities And he's saying no these things must come together that which I have revealed to you my glory all that I am that must be imprinted on your mind and imprinted on your heart as you then carry that light out into the darkness that's what we do on Christmas Eve isn't it as we take our light and we go out there it isn't just because it's pretty with a bunch of candles in here this represents the light of the world going out into the darkness in us the chosen vessels Broken as we are, he's chosen to entrust us this message. But he says you can't do this. You can't do this if you don't see the glory of my face. You can't do this if you're not transformed by the glory of my face. But you also can't do this if you hunker down in the church house. You also can't do this if you shrink back from any level of suffering. You also can't do this if you believe that this path is going to be easy and that the road is going to be wide and that everybody's headed down the same way. You've got to leave this place knowing that the world is going to hate you. The world is going to reject you. The world's going to look at you and say, "I know him. He was with Jesus, and hate you on that account." I think that's the message Jesus has there for them, and the message He has for us this morning. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, for the mountaintop moments. We thank you, Father, for those times when we experience your experience your pre, your presence and just undeniable, overwhelming ways. And Father, we long for that day when through no more eyes of tears, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more hurt, no more pain, no more sin, we will dwell with you for all eternity. But Father, we know that while you have left us here, there will be suffering, that it must be through great tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. And so, we want to embrace that now for the sake of your glory, knowing that it is all for our good as well. Father, we pray that as we lift our voices in song now, that the words that we sing and the meditations of our heart, that they would be pleasing to you, that you would be glorified in our very presence now. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.